Good morning, church. Okay, so uh, one of the advantages of getting to be the preacher is that from time to time, you get to just uh, go off of the script and uh, speak personally. Uh, and this has been a great week for my family. And uh, as many of you know, Garrett and Roseanne were married on Friday. So uh, I don't know where they are or what they're doing now, but they're not here. So, um, and uh, I just, I've been a bit overwhelmed this week on a personal level with what it means to be a part of a church family and how incredible, see if I can just out getting choked up, how incredible it is just to have people who are doing life with you who love you. And all of my family is here this week for the, for the wedding. And so my, uh, all three of my kids are here. All seven of my grandkids were here. By the way, Disneyland for 16 people is, is a little expensive. But anyways, uh, <laughs> so, uh, um, so let the elders know. Give the pastor a raise maybe or something. Um, but... Uh, it has just been such a blessing to be with family and then to, to have church family just surround us and care for us and meet our needs. And some of you have just served our family nonstop all week long, and it's just an ind indication of how you have loved my family from the beginning. We've been here 34 years now, and all of my kids were born in this church. All of my kids were raised in this church. And now <clears throat> their kids are getting bigger, and uh, they're here today, and, and they're being ministered to by the children's ministry team and all of that kind of stuff. And, and when our kids were born, we prayed that, that they would grow up to love God, love us, love each other, and love the church. Because you hear stories about pastor's kids who do not grow up to love the church, and all of my kids love God, love us, love each other, and love the church. So just on a personal note, I just want to say thank you guys for being our church family. We love you. Okay, I did not cry, um, so let's go to First Peter. <laughs> Let's go to 1 Peter. If, uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been in 1 Peter uh, from the first verse of the first chapter. We are now in chapter 5, which is the last chapter of 1 Peter. I'm saying all this to give you a chance to turn there if you're not familiar with where that is in your Bible. If you go to the last book, which is the book of Revelation, and just go a couple of books to the left, you're going to find First and Second Peter. Land in 1 Peter chapter 5, and I just want to begin by reading to you from 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After all that he has said so far, he says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And we're going to come back and dig into some of that, but um, I want us to just begin there in verse 1 because he says, therefore, and the therefore is referring back to all that he has been teaching us, particularly with relationship to the suffering. And he's been talking about how it is normal in the Christian life to suffer, how we don't just get a pass because we come to know Jesus, but that life is still hard even for those of us who walk with the Lord. Can anybody say amen to that? But we have Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. We have purpose. We have meaning. We have a church family. We have each other. And as I walk, you know, all the things that I just said about the blessing of being a part of this church family, I watch people go through storms in life without a relationship with Jesus, without the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and without a church family who loves them. And I honestly go, how does anyone do it? How does anyone survive it? And I'm so thankful that he's given us all that, but he has not said there will be no suffering. And so any preacher who goes around telling you that if you just accept Jesus and write a check to his ministry, your life will be fine, is lying to you. The scripture says over and over again, and 1 Peter has made a big deal about it, that we're going to struggle. That's why this sermon series is entitled Standing Firm. And so after all of that, he says, I exhort you. To exhort someone is to, is to come alongside of them and encourage them to keep going. It's to help someone. Um, for, for me, the easy picture of this is, uh, you know, your, your football team is down by 21 points at halftime and they go into the locker room and they're feeling defeated and they're feeling hopeless and they're thinking the guys on the other side are twice as big as us, twice as fast as us and twice as good as us. And what does the coach do? He gathers them together and probably with a rather loud voice exhorts them, right? He doesn't say, you guys are losers. You guys should be ashamed of yourselves. You guys have failed. You have no chance. You might as well not go out there in the second half. What does he do? He says, guys, don't forget who you are. We've been working hard all season to get ready for a time like this. Yeah, we had a bad first half, but I guarantee you this team could never have a second half as bad as that first half. We are going to come out there and change the direction of this game. You can do it. You can do it. You get up. You can do it. You can do it. And he gets them excited and ready to go. And he fills them with the courage that it takes to go back out there and face the rest of what they have to face with a hope of victory. That's what it is to exhort. And so Peter says, as your fellow elder, I'm exhorting the elders among you. I, I'm trying to give you a word of encouragement. I'm trying to come alongside of you and remind you that you can do this and to challenge you to get up and do it. So why is he doing that? Well, let's think back to the beginning of our study of 1 Peter. If you just turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Don't worry, I'm not going to re-preach all these sermons. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and uh, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Who is Peter writing this letter to? He's writing this letter to people who are undergoing great persecution. Remember, these are first century Christians who have been scattered all over the Middle East because to have stayed in Jerusalem would have probably cost them their lives. They've literally been chased from their homes in hope of saving their lives and they have become aliens and strangers in all these other lands. And he says, I'm writing to those of you who are going through persecution. Most of them are still going through persecution. So one of the things we have to realize is when the church is persecuted, it doesn't behave the way the church does in our experience. Like we, none of you got in your car today and started driving to this church campus and thought to yourself, man, I hope the cops don't see me. Man, man I, I, I hope the CIA is not following me. Man, I hope nobody finds out we're having a worship service. None of you thought that, but they did. And, and the thing that I thought of when I was thinking of these dear people who are facing this persecution and they're scattered, their, their church experience is so different than ours. I experienced this when I was in China. I went to China years ago to, to uh, teach in an underground seminary. And uh, I, someday I'll tell you all those stories. There's some amazing stories. But the thing that I remember is as I gathered with these pastors, they came from everywhere. We were, we were meeting in this office building and we're sleeping there and living there and I just taught 12 hours a day for a week because these people don't get any seminary education. It was an opportunity for me to train up pastors. And so all these dear pastors are there and I'm getting to know them and talking through translators and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things I noticed is that during our times of worship, in here today, the more excited we got about worship and praise, the louder it got. We were clapping our hands, uh, and, and Amanda exhorted us to, to sing and shout and play instruments and dance. Everybody was into it, and the more people got into it, the louder it got. In China, it's exactly the opposite. The more people engage in worship, the quieter it becomes. Everything they do when they gather is done quietly. And at first I thought, man, these people just aren't very excited about Jesus. It turns out it's just the opposite. When the underground church gathers, they gather in small rooms, in small groups, and they worship quietly because they know that there's persecution right outside the door. And, and those are the people that Peter's writing to. Listen, in, the, in Peter's original audience, there are no big churches, okay? There, there are no, most of these churches, he says, I'm exhorting the elders among you and us in an American church like this, we think of elders, we think of a board of leaders in a church, a group of men who are guiding and directing the church and have official capacity and are ordained and all that kind of stuff. Don't picture that when you picture this. 
Most of these churches do not have boards of elders who are in any kind of official position as ordained ministers like we have today. What they have is the most mature men in their group of five or eight or 10 or 12 gives guidance to the rest of the group. And those are the people that he's talking to. Um, there, there are no professionals there. There's nobody who's been to seminary there. And it's those elders or those senior church leaders to whom Peter is ex- uh, directing his exhortation here. Now, I'm beginning my message by telling you that because some of you may be tempted to check out in this message, not that any of you would ever do that, but just the thought might cross your mind that maybe I don't need to listen very closely because I'm not an elder and this is a message directed at elders and since I'm not an elder in the church, I don't have to worry about it. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, there's no doubt that the leadership principles Peter is outlining for us here apply to those of us who are called and ordained as elders in the church. There's no, I'm not disputing that. But I want you to understand the same principles of leadership apply to anyone who wishes to be a godly leader in any context. That might be in the business world. It might be in politics. It could be uh, just being a good leader in your home. It might be coaching a, a, a little league team or an AYSO team or something like that. But if you wish to be somebody who has influence over people, these principles apply to you. So whether you're an elder or not, whether you're a male or a female, whether you're young or old, whether you're a church leader or not, whether you currently find yourself in any leadership position of authority of any kind, listen up because Peter's exhortation here is meant to encourage and train you just as much as it's meant to encourage and train any of the elders. Now, let me speak to my fellow elders in the room. You guys listen double because he is speaking to church elders and there are standards that God has for church elders. There is a calling that God has in the lives of church elders. There is a trust that is placed in the lives of church elders. And because of that, we need to pay special attention and be diligent about maintaining these biblical principles of leadership. Let's go back and read again those first four verses that we read already. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but, as, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the good shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Basically, Peter says this, lead like a good shepherd. Excellent. Because, um, you know, it's very helpful to us because all of us grew up around sheep, right? Right? A lot of us are shepherds, right? And if you're not a shepherd, you probably know at least three or four shepherds, right? And, and or wait a second. No. The original audience knew shepherds. Some of them were shepherds. Everyone saw shepherds doing their work on a regular basis. This was normal to them. It would be like me giving an illustration about traffic on the 605. 
and everybody goes, oh yeah, you don't need to explain that to me. I know what that's all about. He's talking about shepherding and we might miss it. We might go, I don't get it. What does he mean when he's telling us to be good shepherds? Well, he's using an illustration that would have been totally familiar to his original audience. They all knew shepherds. But in the 21st century, urban and suburban Southern California, most of us don't know anything about shepherds. So if we're going to understand this, the first thing we have to do is learn to think like a shepherd. So I'm going to break it down as simply as I possibly can. A shepherd basically has three roles in the life of a sheep. Protect, provide, and lead. Simple as that. His job with regard to his sheep is that he is to protect them, he is to provide for them whatever they need, and he is to lead them away from trouble and into blessing. That's what he is there for. Now, sheep, as you obviously have probably heard before, are very interesting animals. They are totally helpless. They are probably the most helpless of all animals in the animal kingdom. They don't have claws. They don't have sharp teeth. They don't have horns. They don't have quills. They don't have anything to protect them against attack. And by the way, they taste yummy. (laughs) And so if you're a sheep, that's a problem. So they're defenseless against predators. So the shepherd is there with his rod and his staff. Sound familiar? Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, says the sheep to the good shepherd. He's there with his rod and his staff. What is that for? It is to defend the sheep against the attack of attackers. And Peter is going to end his letter by talking about the kind of attack we can expect to face and how we need to be protected from that. So first of all, he protects them. Secondly, he's going to lead them. Um, they, They also, not only are they defenseless, but they're completely unable to find food for themselves. And so, because they have no way of finding food for themselves, he has to lead them to green pastures. Sound familiar? He leads me beside quiet waters. Why? Here's something I learned about sheep. Do you know that a sheep will not drink from a moving stream? He sees his reflection moving and it freaks him out and he backs up. That's how stupid sheep are. They would rather rather die of thirst than face the enemy, the moving sheep that is in the water below them. So there needs to be still waters or quiet waters. And the shepherd leads them beside those waters so they can drink. He leads them to the green pastures so they can graze. He provides for them the things that they need. And sheep have not only no protection, and not only do they not know how to fend for themselves, but they have very little wisdom and absolutely no plan, which is like a lot of people I know. Um, And so they are prone to wander. They will literally walk off a cliff if there's grass growing right on the edge of the cliff because there's food to graze. They keep going and then they go. And you go, oh my gosh, a sheep goes off the edge of a cliff. The other sheep must go, whoa, and back up. Nope. If one sheep go, a lot of sheep go. This is what your mother said to you. If Susie was to jump off a bridge, yes, if you're a sheep, you would go right after Susie. That's how it works. 
So it's really interesting how a shepherd moves and provides for and takes care of sheep compared to what perhaps we've seen a little bit more of, which is how ranchers or cowboys deal with cattle, right? Well, how do they move cattle? When you have a herd of cattle that you need to move, the cowboys get behind the cattle and crack whips and push and threaten and scare the cows into moving forward. But you never see a shepherd behind his flock, A shepherd goes in front of his flock and leads them by example. He asks them to go nowhere that he hasn't gone first. So this leadership aspect of what a shepherd does is absolutely important. They will follow him wherever he leads. Why? Because they've watched him protect and they've watched him provide and they've learned to trust him and let him lead. So to be a good shepherd is a very unselfish role. And Peter emphasizes that fact. Look at verse two, chapter five. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. You don't act as a shepherd because you're being forced to do it. In fact, you could be forced to be a shepherd, but you cannot be forced to be a good shepherd. Because a good shepherd, by definition, cares. He does it out of care for the flock. And, and you, you couldn't do it so that somehow you're going to take advantage of the situation for your own unjust gain. You see, the Christian model of leadership is not about being in charge. It's not about being rich. It's not about having the big corner office. Jesus is absolutely clear that being a leader in his kingdom is about being a servant of all. He taught that lesson to his disciples over and over and over again. If you read the gospels, you'll see it again and again. He told them, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. And he didn't just tell them, but he demonstrated it by serving them. He certainly demonstrated by his willingness to go to the cross, to willingly lay down his own life. He said, greater love is no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And he went to the cross and lay down his life for us. But even before he went to the cross, he demonstrated his servant leadership over and over and over again, right up to the time of the cross. In fact, we see it at the Last Supper. Now remember, the Bible calls Jesus the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd. He's the ultimate shepherd. He is a shepherd with a cape. He is a superhero shepherd. He is the best shepherd you could possibly imagine. And if he's calling us to be shepherds, then we better get our clues from him in what it takes to be a good shepherd. So how did the ultimate shepherd choose to lead his sheep? I want you to just uh, put something there in 1 Peter chapter 5 and go to the Gospel of John. Now the Gospel of John is near the front of your New Testament. You're going to go to John chapter 13. So it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Find John chapter 13, and let me just read to you the first five verses. This is, these are, this is John's description of, of what happens leading up to the famous Last Supper that we've all heard so much about. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, pay attention to that line, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, knowing those things, it says, he got up from the supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. It's very interesting. Remember, Peter was at this supper. Remember, Jesus came to wash Peter's feet, and what did Peter do? Argued. He, he told Jesus, there's no way you're going to wash my feet. Jesus goes, really? Then get out of here. He goes, well, okay, then you, uh, whatever you say. They had this back and forth thing, and, and Jesus ends up washing Peter's feet. Now, that's the same Peter who's writing to us now with this vivid memory in his mind. Look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This ministry of servanthood that Jesus was doing here was motivated by one thing, love. He loved them. He didn't do it for sordid gain. He didn't do it for some sense of position. He didn't do it because he was trying to build his own reputation among them. He did it because he loved them. And then if you skip down to verse three, it says, Jesus, knowing, that, that, verse, that word is underlined in my Bible, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come forth from God and was going back to God. See, he was empowered to do this servanthood by his faith. It was his understanding, his unwavering commitment to the idea that he knew where he had come from. He knew where he was going. He knew what his standing with the father was. He knew who he was and he knew what was promised to him. No menial task could in any way demean him. It's why when Jesus hung bloody and naked on a cross for all to see, there was no shame because he knew who he was. You couldn't take that away from him. You could spit on him, mock him, whip him, throw things at him. It didn't change one bit what he knew about himself. And what he knew about himself was even secondary to what he knew about his father. He knew he was in the father's hands. He knew that the father had promised him that you will come and sit again at the throne. He knew where he was going. He knew where he had come from. And because of that, he was so secure in himself and in his position. He didn't have to stick out his chest and insist on having the seat at the head of the table. He got down on his knees and washed people's feet because he knew who he was and he knew who his father was. He knew where he'd come from and he knew where he was going. And he did this as an example for us. Skip down, we're still in John 13. Skip down to verse 12. <clears throat> we have the whole thing about him arguing with Peter. And then it says, so when he had washed their feet, and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, 
you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I give you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent him greater than the one, the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This is Christian Leadership 101. So let's see if Peter learned anything. Let's go back to 1 Peter 5 now. Pick it up in verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3. He says that we're not supposed to do it under compulsion. We're supposed to do it voluntarily, according to the word of God, by love. Verse 3 says, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory. You see, Peter's saying, serve as if you have nothing to prove. Serve as if you already know that you're secure in Christ. Serve as if you know that no menial act of service could ever demean you. It doesn't make you less. It doesn't rob you of your dignity. And it doesn't cause people to not want to follow you. We all know from experience, we would rather follow a person like this than to follow somebody who sticks out their chest and makes demands. So we're supposed to serve with nothing to prove. It's not about control. It's not about position. And if we skip down to verse five, it says, uh, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We do what we do with confidence and faith and humility. It, it seems to be a missing concept in American or Western leadership today. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just stay as far as I can from naming names or any specifics or mentioning any political parties or donkeys or elephants or any of that stuff. I'll tell you this, just ask yourself this question. When was the last nationally prominent political leader that you looked at and said, man, what a humble guy. It, it, it seems to be missing. There seems to be this sense that in order to raise to a position of leadership, you have to pull everybody down who's in front of you and you have to stand on the top of the mountain and beat your chest and tell everybody how great you are. Peter said, no, no, no. You do it with confidence and faith, not because of how great you are, but because of how great God is. No fear. And he tells us to do it as an example so that we will lead in the same way. So that's Peter's exhortation to the elders. But what about those who are not elders? What about those of you who are youngers? <laughs> Peter has a word for you too. We start in verse five, look at it again. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders with all, um, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore... Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The good shepherd cares for his sheep. In the world system, it, there's a pressure on young people, especially in the business world, 
uh, certainly in politics and anything that we connect to leadership, there is a pressure to make a name for yourself, to somehow draw the spotlight to yourself, to somehow prove yourself, to, to tear down the people on the ladder in front of you so you can make your way to the top. Young, up-and-coming leaders, we expect them to be bold, even cocky. Peter knew something about that, by the way. He had tried that approach with Jesus for three years, and it brought him to the place where he went away weeping like a child with no hope that he could ever be the man, the leader that God created him to be. If you're young and upwardly mobile, this world expects you to shine the light on yourself. But Jesus has a different view. In God's economy, one of the greatest signs of maturity is humble submissiveness. I know I talk about this a lot. I am personally convinced after scouring the scriptures countless times that there is not a greater indicator of spiritual maturity than humble submissiveness. And it's exactly the opposite of the way the world views it, isn't it? Um, but Jesus goes, no, no, the greatest among you shall be the servant of all. The greatest among you are called to be the servants of all. Then how can somebody be truly great? How can one prepare to be a great leader? By humbly serving others. Leadership is not about getting to the top of the organizational pyramid and dragging everyone with you. Leadership is about inverting that pyramid so that you can lift up everybody else. That's what leadership is about. That's what God calls us to do. And he calls us to do it submissively. And he says specifically to young people, listen, be submissive. And you know, I don't know where we draw the line. I, I, I think we should draw the line for young people at under 60. But I don't know where you draw the line. But, but if you think of yourself as uh, below the line where you wouldn't call yourself an old person, then, then let me just take a minute and speak to you. And let me just say to you that I get that there is tremendous passion related to being young, that, that you, you will have strong views, you will be influenced by peers who also have strong views, you, you will be influenced by uh, everything that's out there in social media and the traditional media and the voices of others and all of those kinds of things, and I personally have unbelievable respect for the younger generation. I have always believed that the young people are not the future of the church, they are the present of the church. And that God works through the young, almost every revival in the history of the church has been primarily centered around young people. God works in the young, it's not by mistake that young people have so much passion, it's not by mistake that young people have so much drive, it is not by mistake that young people want to pick up the ball and run with it. And I will say this too, young people don't have much wisdom. And that's a challenge. It's a challenge. Because all of that passion and not much wisdom can add up into some things crashing. I know this because I've had seven grandchildren with me this week. <laughs> <laughs> and how many times have I said, 
what I would give to have that energy, right? And then something crashes, <laughs> right? So, so there needs to be a mix. And so Peter says to young people, with all your passion, do not step back. Do not shrink from the calling. Do not say it's not my turn yet. Do not let anybody tell you to sit down and shut up. If you are a young person, here's what I would tell you. Be humble and be submissive because God may have put some wisdom into some older people or just some even younger people who are wiser than you or maybe God has placed someone in authority over your life who is not wise and is not smart and is not godly and he still wants you to submit to them. Not just young people, old people too. Submissiveness is the number one character of a mature Christian. It takes great faith in God to be submissive. Remember, Jesus knew where he had come from. He knew who sent him. He knew where he was going. So he picked up the towel in the basin and began to serve. If you as a young person are wondering why you're not being noticed or not given opportunities and all of that kind of stuff, ask yourself whether you're setting the example of humility and submissiveness, whether you're willing to step out and serve others or whether you're insisting on having your way and being served. That is how you build your resume in the kingdom of God. Now look at verse six and we'll wrap this up. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. When we humble ourselves, God will exalt us at the right time and in the right way. We want to exalt ourselves at the wrong time and in the wrong way. But God says, humble yourself. You handle that. I'll take care of the exalting. And let's not forget what Jesus said in Luke 18, 14. He said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You want to be great in God's eyes? You want to be worthy to lead the people that God considers precious? Then the best thing you can do is work on your humility and submission. And the best way to become more humble is pushing closer to God. The closer you are to him, the more you realize how small you really are. And by the way, Living a life of humility and submission and trusting God to take care of you is scary. It is hard to trust that God will have my back if I'll just be submissive. It feels like I need to look out for myself because if I don't, maybe nobody will. I like to take charge because I'm scared of what might happen to me if I don't. And God knows that. And that's why he has placed verse seven, a very well-known verse. Most people who have been Christians for any length of time have heard this verse, can maybe even quote it verbatim, 1 Peter 5, 7, but don't know anything about the context. We just lift it up out of context and we say, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. One of the most encouraging verses in all of scripture, the good shepherd cares for me. He's not going to let the wolves get me. He is not gonna let me lead myself off a cliff. He is not gonna let me starve. He's gonna protect me. He's gonna provide for me. He's gonna lead me. I'm gonna trust him for that. Why can I trust him for that? Because he's God and he cares for me. In the context of this call to suffer in humility, we need to be reminded 
that we can cast our cares upon the one who cares for us and can do something about it. So he invites you all, lay your burdens down at his feet. But this verse has special significance in the context of servant leadership. God knows how terrifying it is to humbly submit. He knows it makes us nervous to choose to serve rather than to be in charge. So he invites us to cast those cares upon him. After all, he's our great shepherd. He cares for us. You can trust him. He's got you firmly in his hands. We went to Disneyland this week with our kids. And uh, one of the great joys was for Christy and I to take the two-year-old boys, there's a two-year-old boy in each family, take the two-year-old boys and uh, let the parents go off and ride fast rides while uh, we said, what do you want to do? Those two-year-old boys, the only thing they want to do is ride the carousel. (laughs) I'm not talking once. (laughs) I'm talking 50 times. They just want to ride the carousel. We get off the carousel. They point at the carousel. They go up, down, up, down. Yes, I know. And round and round. Believe me. (laughs) I know. We did it like five or six times with these boys. And I'm thinking to myself, you guys, I paid a million bucks to get you into this place. (laughs) You know what? There's a carousel at the mall. But those boys, they just want to ride the carousel, right? And, and... And my role and their grandmother's role was to care for them. We got them on the horses the first time. You should have seen how big their eyes were. Those horses start going up. (gasps) But we just put a hand on their backs. So it's going to be fine. We got you. And by the time we've been around once, they were having the time of their lives. Guys, the things that are scaring you are just carousels. God, God says, you know, these, these minor temporary challenges that we face, they're nothing compared to what life's really about. And, and so I want to remind you that you may be on a ride that's a little bit scary. And what you may want to do is just take charge and make sure you're okay. But I challenge you, serve others. Realize that the one who cares for you is with you. And he holds you firmly in your hands, in his hands. Humble yourself. Serve others out of love and trust God to take care of you. It's countercultural, but it's the biblical recipe for great leadership. In fact, it's the biblical recipe for successful living. So I join Peter in exhorting you to follow this good counsel from God. Humble yourselves. Cast your cares upon him. You will never regret it. He is the great shepherd and he cares for you. Let's stand together and pray. Our heavenly father, as we come to you, our good shepherd, we are reminded of Psalm 23. It gives us this amazing picture of of uh, lush gardens and still waters and the valley of the shadow of death. But the one constant is that you are with us and you care for us. And so, Lord, I just want to pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice right now who, who may be facing a struggle they don't know what to do with or, 
Or they just may be scared and there may be a tendency, a temptation to, to insist on their own way, to force things to go the way they want them to, to protect themselves at all costs, no matter what happens to anybody else or to your fame, Lord. I pray you put your arms around each one of us who's in that place. You remind us that you're the good shepherd, that your rod and your staff would comfort us. You would let us humble ourselves, lead us to humble ourselves that you would not have to humble us. And Father, use us to be a blessing to others, for that's why we're here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.